HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Yeah, good afternoon and welcome. It's once again that special time of the week. <laughs> it's What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Uh, we have one of my very favorite guests today. Her name is Dr. Orvashi Rangan. She leads Consumer Reports Consumer Safety and Sustainability Group and serves as their executive director for their Food Safety and Sustainability Center. Dr. Rangan directs all of the organization's food safety testing and research, in addition to the scientific risk assessments related to food and product safety, which she translates into actionable recommendations for lawmakers and consumers. She is an environmental health scientist and toxicologist and is a leading expert, watchdog, and spokesperson on food labeling and food safety. Dr. Rangan received her PhD from the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, one of our great public institutions. Um, welcome to the show, Urvashi. Thanks for joining me again. And once again, I have to say that reading somebody's CV like that just makes me want to crawl into a hole and cover myself with dirt. <laughs> it makes me want to crawl into a hole too, Katie. <laughs> I'm just not worthy, Urvashi. I'm just not worthy. Oh, um, you guys uh, just published, an, I know it wasn't just, but in August, uh, Consumers Union came out with a very large report on beef, um, and it focused primarily on ground beef, um, and because ground beef seems to be a leading vector for foodborne illness, and of course, hamburger is the American mainstay. So um, tell us, give us the high points of that um, of that uh, report, and and how was it received? Yeah, sure. Um, That's right, Katie. In in our October uh, 2015 issue, we published our uh, story and our test project that we did do on ground beef. We tested about 458 pounds of ground beef. We bought it from 26 different cities around the nation to try to get a good snapshot of what was going on uh, nationwide. And um, we put it to the test. We looked for a number of different 
bacteria on that ground beef, and then we look to see how those how resistant those bacteria were um, to a variety of antibiotic classes, all important in human medicine. Right, and so um, and then also you you had a lot. The the report was excellent, by the way. I really Thank really you. enjoyed reading it. Um, it's something that literally everyone should read. I mean, it is. You guys are a consumers union. You are doing your work for us, the consumer, um, and so it behooves people to to keep keep track of stuff like this. And this was a very informative report. So you had a long section about labeling, which I thought was fascinating. And you and you did these really nifty charts about what is you know the most um, accurate labeling, what is complete nonsense, and so forth. So why don't you give us a quick uh, rundown about that whole story, you know, between natural, sustainable, you know, blah, 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 all the stuff that you see on the package that can be very confusing. You know, there are so many labels out there, and uh, one one piece of work we've been doing uh, for a long time is really running the labels that you see in the store um, through a set of criteria, mm-hmm. and just like we rate automobiles or toasters, we have a set of criteria that we run all the labels through and we see how they stack up. And there's a lot of differences in the labels out there. Perhaps the most misleading label of all is uh, natural. And it really has nothing to do with how the animal was raised or what it ate. It only means nothing artificial was added to the cut of meat itself. Um, And it could mean that an animal was fed drugs every day, was confined in a feedlot. It may mean a chicken never went outdoors. Um, and so it has nothing really to do with anything that most consumers think of as natural, and we know that from a number of national surveys that we've done. On the other hand, there are a number of really good labels out there. Um, Animal Welfare Approved is perhaps one of the best labels that's out there on um, a lot of meat products. The GAP, uh, the Global Animal Partnership label that people often see at Whole Foods as right. a five-step or six-step program. Um, steps four, five, and five plus are really getting to very sustainable systems and are really quite good. Organic certainly offers a lot of meaning when it comes to uh, better animal production practices, but more needs to be done on the lines of animal welfare, but still a good label out there. And then, you know, if you can't find any certified labels at all, at the very least, labels like Raised Without Antibiotics and those that have a verification along with that um, are sort of the first step, at least, in moving toward more sustainable production systems. When you say certification along with the label that says Raised Without Antibiotics, I I can't recall having ever seen anything that quote-unquote certifies that. Yeah, it's true. You know, most manufacturers and producers, uh, if they want to label a meat product, just have to send some paperwork into the USDA and they get a quick check and they're allowed to use the claim. So there's no incentive really for producers to get an additional verification. USDA does offer an optional verification service called Process Verified. And uh, it's not a label in and of itself. It's just a verification service that you can hire to corroborate uh, a claim that you want to use. Um, And so if you can find the Raised Without Antibiotics claim along with a USDA process verified label, that's your sort of, um, sort of, that's the first thing you want to look for. And you're right, you don't see a whole lot of that because producers aren't really incentivized to do that. It's not required. What does it cost them to do that? Because I know the USDA charges every time you make a change on your label. 
Um, yeah, it's true. I don't know what the actual costs for verification are. I know for organic, for example, certification costs can run from a couple hundred dollars to a couple thousand dollars a year, depending on mm-hmm. the scale and the amount that needs to be inspected. I'm not sure what the uh, USDA is charging for those on-farm verifications. Uh, but for us, if labels aren't verified, and it's one of the criteria that we look at when we rate labels, uh, that sort of has an impact on their overall reliability. It doesn't mean they don't mean anything, but it, the, the labels that provide the highest level of assurances are those that are verified with an on-farm inspection. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, you could probably pretty much tell the USDA you wanted to do this and pay that money and then kind of um, gamble on the fact that there aren't enough inspectors and there's, you know, there's very little um, follow through on the part of the USDA in terms of making sure that what you're saying is accurate or am I, I just making that up? I think that's absolutely true without that verification. Um, mm-hmm. So people who are just making those claims and submitting what are called affidavits into the USDA, there's no inspection that goes along with that. Oh so God. Uh, you, you would not necessarily have that reliability. If you do get the process verification label, then you are actually paying for a service and they do actually need to come out and do annual uh, yeah. inspections on the farm. Um, Amazing. That's just fascinating. I mean, that whole point that we just made about the fact that the USDA doesn't actually follow through and, and, and verify for themselves when somebody says, oh, I don't use antibiotics or I don't use growth hormones or whatever. No, and we've actually unearthed some problems with that over the years, not in this story in particular, but there are, uh, last time we surveyed the market, I think this was sometime in 2010 or 2011, uh, we found more than 32 different permutations of the no antibiotics claim on the market and, you know, raised without antibiotics, no antibiotics, and many of them meant no antibiotics. And uh, according to the standards that USDA has set for that, which is um, no antibiotics ever in their lifetime, no ionophores, which are another uh, class of antibiotics that are used in animal production. Um, It's quite actually a decent standard. Um, But what we did find were funny claims like no antibiotic residues or no antibiotics used for growth promotion. (laughs) And when we contacted the Food Safety Inspection Service, which is the arm of USDA that's actually responsible for the oversight of these labels, they said that they had never approved those claims. Uh-huh. When we reported that in the magazine, we heard from uh, both Cargill and um, one uh, Smithfield um, in two separate instances saying that they had gotten approval from the USDA for those claims, and we asked them to send us their paperwork, and sure enough, the USDA had, in fact, green-lighted those claims. When we went wow. back to USDA to ask them about it, at one point they said during the Smithfield complaint that they had inadvertently approved that claim. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then they had asked Smithfield to take it off within the next six months. In the other case, we learned something really fascinating, which was uh, this was more recently on Cargill and on turkeys that were being sold that were labeled as no antibiotics used for growth promotion. Uh-huh. Um, we learned that while the Food Safety Inspection Service, which oversees labels, would not approve that claim, the Agricultural Marketing Service, which offers the process verified, arm, Uh um, was in fact offering that label with that service. 
And we were fascinated by that, that one arm of USDA would never approve the claim and the one responsible for oversight and enforcement would never approve it, while this other agricultural marketing arm um, was greenlighting these claims uh, for manufacturers and, and verifying them. Um, so that's problematic in and of itself. And the claim, though, the claim no antibiotics used for growth promotion is also problematic because we know that people, uh, that farmers can use antibiotics on a daily basis for what they call disease prevention. Right. And that means healthy animals get antibiotics every day just like they would for growth promotion, but you call it something else, which is disease prevention. Right. Uh, we which think is outside that's of a, those guidelines that we're Yeah, adopting. pretty bad way to to keep animals healthy. They don't need to be fed drugs every day to do that. There are better ways of doing that. And so the claim, even if it were um, allowed by all parts of USDA, we would still find to be, you know, meaningless in terms of what that means to consumers because they could, the healthy animals could still get antibiotics every day. Sure. And that, and I, I want to just emphasize again, because I think people are still confused. The antibiotics are not actually in the meat the problem with the use of antibiotics every day is creating, uh, and you correct me, um, is creating uh, antibiotic-resistant pathogens, which can then be transferred into somebody's kitchen through improper handling or wrong temperatures or something like that. Isn't that yeah, right? Yeah, Katie, Abashi? that's exactly right. And I think um, it's a really important point to clarify that we're not talking about drug residues on right. the meat. Um, in fact, there are often withdrawal periods that yeah. are required um, so that you don't get uh, significant residues of antibiotics on the meat. The real significant problem is, are these resistant bacteria. And I think what people don't realize is that um, they could be exposed to it through the meat itself. But what that does on the farm when you have these big sort of manure pits or lagoons um, is that you're creating what we call, as scientists, environmental reservoirs of mm -hmm. resistant bacteria. And these bacteria are living, yeah. and they become resistant, and they share their resistance with their co-bacteria compatriots, <laughs> and they can also expand resistance on, on the genes um, to other antibiotics. And so right. this is a living, breathing problem out in the environment that uh, can actually exacerbate itself as we continue these practices. And so, sure, one particular problem is the meat itself that comes from these animals, but then what they leave behind, how that can contaminate the ground, the groundwater, and, and lead to secondary infections in people, that's also a problem as well. Wow, Urvashi, that's just chilling, isn't it? Um, but I want to I want to move on from that uh, to um, another label that you guys talked about was cool country of origin labeling and um, you know the World Trade Organization has been against it I think I know our beef production mostly does not yeah, want cool. But so here's what happened on country us. of origin labeling. Yeah. We, uh, as a country, passed this law it was mm -hmm. an act of Congress um, a number of years ago that would require um, some of the remaining products on the market to have country of origin labeling. It turns out we have really old tariff laws on the book that require country of origin labeling on um, 
olive oils, for example, uh-huh. and, and things that we import um, to a large degree. And then we slowly started getting country of origin labeling required on produce and other things, and Seafood. finally on yeah. meat. Right. And meats become very controversial. Um, Canada and Mexico sued the United States at the World Trade Organization, um, and the U.S. lost, and then it lost its appeal as well. It even appealed. And the World Trade Organization basically ruled that Yes, labeling meat with various countries of origin, which is what we have. Right. Ground meat, for example, in a package can come from up to five different countries. And we think that's important information for people to know, and people, according to our surveys, want to know that. Yeah. But the World Trade Organization basically said, you know, that is a quasi-trade barrier. Uh, it seems to add a lot of complication if Mexico and Canada have to do all that labeling, and therefore they've ruled it um, in violation of WTO rules. And uh, like I said, our U.S. trade reps actually appealed that, um, and they lost again. We actually submitted survey data into that court ruling as well, showing that people want to know, even if it's multiple origins, where their meat is coming from. So where it stands now is a debate about what the penalties will be if we continue to keep these regulations in place. Whether or not we repeal country of origin labeling is up to us. And um, Representative Conaway has actually introduced uh, amendments to the Country of Origin Labeling Act that would remove the requirement for beef, pork, and chicken Uh uh, while keeping some of the requirements, like for lamb, where I guess you don't have multiple countries often. Um, There are other ones, other bills that have been introduced that would allow for voluntary Country of Origin labeling, although one would think if you wanted to voluntarily do that now, you'd already be able to do that. So we're, of course, opposed to all of those efforts. We think this is something that people ought to know. They have a right to know. Um, What's interesting in Canada is that if their meat comes from Europe, for example, it's labeled as to its country of origin. So I guess for (laughs) Canadian consumers, it's okay. uh, But for U.S. consumers, it's not. And what's really interesting on Mexico and Canada's argument is they don't want it labeled. They just want it labeled made in the U.S. if it's going to U.S. consumers. They feel as if it's um, sort of uh, diminishes the meaning if it's labeled with multiple countries of origin. And, um, you know, all of it is a bit nonsensical in the sense that meat does come from a variety of different places. Sometimes our animals are born in Canada, raised right. here, slaughtered in Mexico, sold back. You know, it can go across the borders quite easily. Um, and so there's that. And then there's also meat that comes from Uruguay yeah. or Australia that gets mixed in with our meat. And so a ground beef package can have up to five different countries of origin on it. Possibly. Right, right. And so from the point of view of traceability, country of origin labeling does have significant meaning for consumers because you do want to know like, well, if my meat came from Uruguay, then we need to go back to that place if there's some significant foodborne illness outbreak, right? Well, I mean, that's that right. And important? you know, what's really interesting is before country of origin labeling went into effect, it was of course very controversial even then and companies arguing mm-hmm. that this would be very arduous and cost a lot of money. But the thing is that the suppliers know where their meat's coming from. And so yeah. that information is actually 
in the supply chain already. This is just a matter of disclosure um, to the final purchaser, and so it shouldn't require that much more to do, and and in some ways that's why it succeeded uh, in passing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's move on to the dietary guidelines, um, because those new guidelines came out this summer, this past summer, and uh, and they were groundbreaking in the sense that they had, for the first time, uh, sort of an environmental impact statement about the consumption of meat. And recently, that got dropped uh, from the final draft, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. And um, I wondered if you could comment on, like, who brought that pressure to bear, what what happened? Why did Congress lose their nerve, or whoever is in charge of creating yeah, these dietary Yeah, it was guidelines? really disappointing. Yeah. And again, that came from a lot of um, industry lobbying efforts to do away with that, um, you know, citing that that wasn't really something that was appropriate or should be incorporated, right. Not or relevant. we didn't know enough in order to incorporate those sustainability <laughs> principles <clears throat> into our dietary guidelines. We were extraordinarily disappointed with that, and um, in some ways, it's really, um, it's the modern day age. And the advice, the scientific advisory committee on those guidelines had made the recommendation that they do include some sustainability factors. They were citing uh, energy and water usage, right. I believe, related to beef production. Um, mm. But we would take it even beyond that and even to say, uh, it's not sustainable to feed healthy animals antibiotics every day. Right. And given the public health problem with antibiotics becoming less effective, that's not sustainable. Um, those are the types of examples um, that we actually um, have have cited as well in terms of our uh, disdain for that action. Uh, we already know those things. The science is already there, and it's yeah. really disappointing that our government um, should have to wait so many years uh, to incorporate those things. You know, it's funny, the original dietary guidelines during, I believe it was World War uh, one or two actually um, suggested that Americans eat more butter um, and, and to get more fat. Excellent. And so, you know, it's interesting the how these dietary <laughs> guidelines are actually very political yeah. um, in so many ways. And it's really a shame that we have to wait um, when we have the science today that tells us what is sustainable and what isn't in order to incorporate that into how we produce our food in this country. And yeah. Um, and really to shortchange our opportunity to do that better. Who exactly is on the committee to establish those dietary guidelines, and who was responsible for uh, caving into industry pressure and passing them without? No, I I don't have all of those details. I know that it was a broad scientific panel that drew up those guidelines, and the scientific advisories are not made up of government uh, employees. They're made up of... Uh, private citizens. And so I, for example, serve on the FDA Food Advisory Committee along with several other members who are not employees of the government. And Mm -hmm. that's done in an effort to get that kind of multi-stakeholder, independent input uh, into these processes. And in general, um, the government does rely on their scientific advisory committees to help direct how these guidelines are going to go. There are public meetings, there's public input, and so they're very thoughtful, deliberated types of advice. It's sort of not done willy-nilly. In terms of 
lobbying against these things. This was the industry that that doesn't want these practices um, imposed on them. Unfortunately, the way we produce most of the meat and poultry in this country is through conventional channels. Um, They're very consolidated, and so these industries um, have a lot of power, and they have a lot of power to sort of uh, lobby to maintain the status quo. That's what I find incredible. I mean, you you have this very thoughtful group of private citizens who are giving their best scientific ad- advice about you know certain issues and then you have uh, you know an industry lobby group that just runs right over those I, those concepts yeah even though they're science-based and theoretically accurate um, and the and Congress continues to support the lobby over the needs and desires of the consumer the consumer population. Yeah, it's really incredibly disappointing. It's incredibly and, disappointing and um, scary as hell. I mean, I, I think it's it's criminal. I think these people should be, you know, prosecuted for colluding with industry to, um, you know, to continue to degrade the environment and the and our medical arsenal. Well, that's right. I mean, the the cost to the environment, the cost to public health, these costs are externalized at this point. They're not actually um, integrated into our cost of production. And that's why you get cheap prices out there, because the real costs are not integrated. And so when people ask, why is organic meat so much more expensive? Why is grass-fed, pasture-raised meat so much more expensive? Because those folks are internalizing those costs of not polluting the environment, of not using drugs every day. And so recognizing that and and for us helping people understand that, we hope it helps educate people about where the true value really lies. And so you may be paying more, but you're getting a lot more because it's got a whole lot more value because it's internalizing those costs. That's right. Because, I mean, really, we're all paying, you know, for cheap meat. But anyway, I wanted to just uh, touch on one thing. Uh, you know, Urvashi, I sold a book proposal. I'll just tell you this right now on the air. <laughs> I sold a book proposal to a British press about the meat industry, a global sort of overview of the meat industry, which I'm about to, and I'll be calling you Urvashi. Um, <laughs> but I'll one of the waiting. things, <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, it'll be multiple times. I'm sorry to say. I'll try to <laughs> try to put it all in one document. But um, one, I had to like sort of look up some of the regulations in the European Union, Australia, obviously other big meat production. And if I understood this correctly, um, European Union farmers are required to test for salmonella and other foodborne pathogens on the farm before the animals go to uh, processing. Yeah, isn't that novel? So I mean, we- <laughs> why can't we do that here? Right. I mean, I think people in this country think we do that as well. And so the first thing to say is we don't. We don't have on-farm anything when it comes to pathogens, when it comes to antibiotic resistance. And, of course, these bacteria um, start all the way at the beginning. So yeah. at the hatcheries, um, if the hatcheries are contaminated with salmonella, if the mother is laying eggs um, and she has salmonella in her tract, um, then then your risk of having salmonella throughout that chain is there. And, excuse me, and so you would think that we in this country would actually monitor for that? Yes, I would think that. But no such luck, But apparently. we don't. <laughs> <laughs> excuse me. Oh, you me. poor thing. You sound um, terrible. 
And so that is a challenge for us. We don't actually look at that far back in the system. We just dunk them in chlorine at the end and hope for the best. Yeah, that's what we do. But do you think if we were requiring our farmers to do that, um, and I should say, I should qualify our farmers, because in the case of like a confined uh concentrated animal feeding operation uh, that's either pork, beef, or chicken, but mostly I would say pork and chicken, with chicken being the biggest offender with salmonella. Um, would that make a difference in the incidence of foodborne disease, or do you think it would just be like, oh, well, you have salmonella in your barn, so clean it up? Well, that's a good question, and I think it also comes down to what are our standards, what do we allow. Right. So in Europe, they have a zero tolerance for salmonella. And so in order to really achieve that, you have to go all the way back to the farm. Yeah. Um, in this country, we allow for seven percent of our broilers I, are allowed yeah. to have salmonella and be legally sold. This is part of the whole foster farms uh, outbreak problem. Uh-huh. And... Excuse me. And at the time when Foster Farms was happening, we didn't even have a standard for chicken parts, um, which I was completely floored by when I learned that during the Foster Farms outbreak. Uh Um, But USDA informed us that, no, they didn't. (laughs) And so it turns out, everybody, (laughs) for most cuts of meat, there aren't any standards. Wow. And that's that's a challenge. But all to say that... Excuse me, but by allowing a certain amount of meat to be contaminated with salmonella, you don't need to really try that hard. You can dunk them at chlorine in the end and try to sort of treat the problem on its way out the door. We think those kind of Band-Aid solutions at the end of the line are nonsense. And until we deal with the root causes of the problem, which are dealing with the farm and dealing with hygiene practices on the farm, we don't even have a set of required hygiene practices for our farms. They are not required. If you are a huge confined animal feeding operation where you're producing tons of manure... Excuse me. There are some standards for you. Yeah, there should be. I mean, you're. T- I mean, to go back to what you were saying earlier in the segment uh, about the manure lagoons and you know the profligate breeding of bacteria in those areas. You know, like you really are kind of um, you know kind of obliged to manage that somehow, but we don't. You know what, Arvashi? Let's take a quick break because we haven't done a sponsor drop yet, and we'll let you like clear your throat and drink. Have a drink. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, we'll be right back with Dr. Rankin from Consumers Union. And today's break music is by Keto. The song is called Yuki. We'll be right back. The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef's Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. Oh, sorry. (laughs) 
it's like standing there listening with my mouth hanging open, looking out the window. I'm really on it today. Um, this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking about, uh, among other things, the meat industry with uh, Dr. Urvashi Rangan from Consumer Reports, Consumers Union, um, and uh, referencing it most particularly the um, the report that just came out in their October issue. But I wanted to, Urvashi, I wanted to move on a little bit because, um, first of all, we're running out of time. And secondly, because um, vis-a-vis the sort of consumer, and I mean both your consumers, you know, Consumer Reports and Consumers Union, but also just the consumer out in the street, there's been a lot of movement within the meat industry addressing the issues of antibiotics in the food chain and antibiotic resistance. And, and you know, it goes back to some of the labeling that we were talking about, you know, raised without antibiotics ever, blah, 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 blah. So Purdue Chicken recently made headlines, I guess a few months ago now, uh, announcing that they would no longer use antibiotics in their hatcheries and that they will phase out antibiotics from their supply chain altogether by something like 2016, 2017. So do you think that uh, that that industry is really uh, actually going to do um, a good job of doing this or are they going to continue to drag their feet uh, kicking and screaming until perhaps the federal government mandates it. And well, as we- I do think it's kind of an interesting move forward. And, you know, you are seeing companies that are trying to uh, deal with the lowest hanging fruit. And in some ways, I mean, it's all, you know, baby steps forward, and that's great. Uh, but it's not enough. And so let's just sort of piece apart what the industry is doing. Right. I mean, to your point, Purdue has said, you know what, we're going to stop injecting our eggs with antibiotics, <coughs> excuse me, and stop injecting the baby chick. Um, and it took them, they say, 12 years to figure out how to yeah. do that. Why, why was that? Because Europe's been doing that probably for the last 12 years. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it, it really comes down to better hygiene in the hatcheries and cleaning them out and making sure that you're monitoring at that point. They've never been required to do that. And so companies can always claim we've met the legal requirements because they have. Uh, so, look, it's a good, important step that they've at least moved that forward. That said, we don't want to see healthy animals get any drugs on a daily basis or on a routine basis. So it's one step forward. The other thing that many companies are doing and um, that many companies are doing is they are saying, we are going to stop the use of human antibiotics. And what they mean by that is that they're not going to feed tetracycline and other things we use in human medicine every day to healthy animals. Uh, That's nice, too. Um, And that's an important step forward. And it's actually something that the Food and Drug Administration has been saying um, that they don't, they've given some voluntary guidance saying, please don't feed human antibiotics for growth promotion. Right. But we know antibiotics can also be used for disease prevention. That's That's another use that they're approved for. And while they say that 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 use is going to require a veterinarian's approval, lots of companies have vets working for them. And so we're still concerned with the indiscriminate use of antibiotics on a daily basis to help the animals for disease prevention. You can essentially shift the use. The other thing we're concerned about, even if you address human antibiotics, 
is you can shift that use to other things and other drugs. And so we use lots of other drugs in agriculture, too, on a daily basis. Until you really deal with hygiene and sustainable practices, even animal welfare practices that give animals space and air and deal with ammonia levels and all sorts of things, Um, you will not be able to get out from using drugs on a daily basis because those are the ways you keep things artificially clean. And so until we really address those sort of fundamental practices for why it is we use drugs, human antibiotics or other drugs on a daily basis, we will not be able to eliminate this use and it will not be sustainable. Yeah, how? but how would they do that? I mean, say you're a hog farmer and you have 10,000 pigs and you have the space for a great big pig house, but you don't have the space for a lot of acreage where your pigs can run around outside. So, I mean, we're really essentially talking about completely changing the model of how we grow meat in this country. Well, and, you know, I don't know how that's going to work out. I think in some ways, you know, you can take gradual steps. It's an and Starting somewhere does matter. And in Denmark, it's a great example of where you still have industrialized farming. It's not like the pigs are necessarily roaming free on pasture, which is a very sustainable way that they want to live and eat, and they're probably the healthiest. If you talk to Paul Willis from Nyman Ranch, um, you know, he'll tell you about his pigs and the fact that they don't have to treat them very often, even for disease. Right. Um, In Denmark, they have been able to reduce the overall use of antibiotics just even by keeping the barns themselves really clean, even though those animals are still confined. Uh, I don't know that those animals are in gestation crates, though. That's where you put a pregnant sow into a gestation crate where they can't even turn around or move. Can you imagine? Um, and <laughs> Unfortunately, so, yes. <laughs> you know, even, even those are banned, something by the way. better means a lot. Even some hygiene management can can get you further down the road. But really, if we're thinking in the long term about how do we want to raise the animals that we eat? One, we have to deal with how much we consume, and maybe it's a little too much. And that's maybe the trade-off for getting more sustainable systems in as well. Yeah, that's going to be a hard sell to most consumers, unfortunately, until a manure lagoon shows up in their backyard, or they come home with, you know, some antibiotic resistant disease from, you know, taking a walk down past a farm. Um, I wanted to uh, just move on a little bit to some of the other drugs, because um, like in the in the again, at the European Union, based on my cursory initial research, um, they banned the use of hormones long ago, along with antibiotics, and also a class of drugs called beta agonists, which was widely used in the United States, um, and which has been the source of some controversy. But why, I mean, even China and Russia, for example, have banned ractopamine. Why are they considered safe in this country, but they are not considered desirable in other countries? Well, it's a great question. So, ractopamine, let's just talk about that, is uh, like it's called a beta agonist. It's yeah. like an asthma drug. In fact, it was developed originally um, as an asthma drug. Um, and. It is given to animals um, for feed efficiency, so it sort of keeps them lean. Um, in fact, the ones for pigs are called paline. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
Uh, it's this, again, art of, way of sort of cheapening the feed so that you don't have to feed them as much food, and right. so you can save there by feeding them ractopamine every day. It has one of the most terrible adverse events for animals of any of the drugs out there. Um, you can imagine if you're feeding an animal asthma drugs every day that their hearts may start beating very quickly, which they do. In a lot of cases, there's a very high mortality rate associated with that drug use. Flocks of turkeys have gone down over the use of this wow. stuff. Um, and at the end of the day, the the study that... The study that was done was on five very, very healthy males, just five, uh, taking whatever the doses were of ractopamine, and they were fine. So if you give a couple puffs of inhaler to most healthy people, they're going to be fine. Um, Now, that was just based on five people. What Europe said was uh, that's not enough to show that that's safe, so we're not going to allow it. In this country, and this is sort of a a sort of great classic um, contrast uh, for how we we would interpret something like that differently, is well that showed it was safe, and so we basically green lighted that through. the The prohibition in China and Russia, to be honest, I think is more of a trade. yeah, barrier that they want to put up for us, and Taiwan also has a similar yeah. prohibition. Um, and I think it's because we make a lot of uh, barriers for them, so they've made a lot of barriers for us. So that becomes one of them. So that's more of I think game playing more than it is. They're very concerned about ractopamine in particular. Um, <laughs> well, they but, use a different one, so they. Can- that's, that's correct. They use clenbuterol, and exactly. so they allow for that. So I use it really that. isn't about concern over beta agonists right. as much as it is trying to create more gonna... problems with uh, importing our meat into those countries. But we do allow it and extensively. And, you know, you can see a meat product that is labeled no antibiotics and no hormones, and it could have still gotten ractopamine sure. because beta agonists are not antibiotics and they're not hormones, although they're used for very similar purposes. That's right. And that's really, I think, one of the more damning things is that people don't know about that drug use. For a long time, the USDA would not approve labels that said produced without the use of beta agonists like ractopamine. Just in the last month or two, USDA has finally allowed meat producers to use that claim, uh, which again is a nonsensical sort of barrier for people who want to make that kind of value-added claim, but now they'll be able to do that. Incredible. Well, I think we have reached the end of this. I mean, I could go on and on, but I, I have the feeling that it's, uh, <laughs> that we should probably let you go. Um, but thank you so much for joining me. And, and tell people again where they can access that report uh, that sure. you guys just we came actually, out with. Um, it's in our October issue. We also issued a 50-page scientific report to go along with that. And um, you can find that at consumerreports.org. We also have our green website called greenerchoices.org. Org, which has all the label information in it. Yeah. Um, and all of this is for free as part of our public service.
service on safety stories. So con- contribute, but uh, also contribute to Heritage Radio Network. <laughs> <laughs> it's more important, actually. We have less money. No, but I, I love consumers. I've always been a fan and I've always been a subscriber. So um, I encourage everyone to do the same. And uh, Urvashi, thanks so much for joining me today. I know you're not uh, completely feeling the best you have ever felt, but uh, I hope you feel better before you travel. Thanks and thanks to my sponsor today and to uh, my um, interstitial music, which was by Keto called Yuki. And uh, thanks to my engineer, as always. See you next week, folks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.